You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, hey, good morning, North Valley. Good to be with you. For all of you that are online, good morning, good morning. And for those of you that are on our campus, uh, good morning. You may be wondering why I'm on the screen today. Well, back in 2019, I actually um, taught a little less than I am at, during, in 2020. Um, back in 2019, uh, we decided as an elder team to allocate a lot more of my time towards helping uh, rally the resources through the Big Serve Like Jesus Resource Initiative, uh, give time towards leading that uh, major initiative to help improve our campus, and we were able to do that as well. In 2019, we had a lot of staff transitions, and we made some really big land deals, which, by the way, I'm really excited to share with you. More exciting news about that in the next month or two. But in 2020, our elder team decided that it would be best if I began to serve more and more with more teaching and more writing uh, and to best serve the church, and especially during the time of the pandemic. So by the year end, I will have taught perhaps three times as much as I regularly taught in 2019, and will have provided enough devotional content for several small books. So doing the best I can. However, with all that being said, every once in a while, I need a time out. And so this weekend, I'm with my family uh, down in southern Arizona having family time. And so I felt it appropriate to go ahead and walk through this entire teaching series because it's not just anybody you can get to come and teach on what we're going to be talking about living in the last days. So I did the extra work and had the team help prep this special message for you today. So let's go ahead and get started. Today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at one of the most radical concepts perhaps that you've ever heard of. It's called the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. This idea rocked my world. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, somebody handed me a book. I think it was by John Piper, and it said, don't waste your life. And it was the idea that one day that we would have to give an account for the life that we live. Did you know that every single one of us have an appointment that we have to keep? This appointment will occur directly after the rapture. It occurs right after the rapture. It's a review of our life. There's no hiding. There's no pretending There's no trying to give account for our life in a better way or portray it better than it actually was. This reminds me of a story I heard about a frustrated basketball coach, uh, Coach Cotton Fitzsimmons. He hit on this idea to motivate his, his team before the game. He gave them a speech that centered around this word, pretend. He gave them a speech that centered on this word, pretend, and he said, gentlemen, When we go out here tonight, instead of remembering that we were in last place, pretend we were in first. Instead of being on a losing streak, pretend we were on a winning streak. Instead of being a regular game, pretend this is a playoff game. With that, the team went out on the basketball court and were soundly beaten by the Boston Celtics. Coach Fitzsimmons was deeply upset about the loss and After the game, one of the players just slapped him on the back and said, cheer up, coach, pretend we won. The reality is it does no good to pretend. Many of us in the Christian life, I believe, 
are pretending. We're pretending perhaps that we are running the race of the Christian life better than we actually are. But the Bible tells us that a day is coming when Christians can't pretend anymore, that we're going to have to give account for everything on our, that how we lived our life on earth. There'll be no pretending before Jesus. He will see right through every deed, every action, every motive, or the lack of. He will review our entire lives in all the good, in all the bad, all together. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the proof text uh, for this. It says this, the Apostle Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The judgment seat of Christ is also called the Bema seat. It would be the, the platform, if you will, in, in the ancient uh, Roman world that was perhaps placed in a coliseum or on a field or just on the edge of it where the competitors would come in for perhaps a review of their athletic achievements or their be given awards. Oftentimes, these competitors would come in and train for many, many months in tight regimes, and then they would come to the platform, step up onto the platform, and receive acknowledgement or achievements, acknowledging their achievements and success as an athlete. What the Apostle Paul says is that we all have to appear before this judgment seat of Jesus Christ. The context here, the Apostle Paul puts it, in the mind and the frame where we have to realize that we're going to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ, our judge. What you need to know, this is not about salvation. This is not about, the the Bible says that salvation is by God's grace, that it's a gift of God, that it's through faith. That is salvation. Salvation is something that is freely given to all those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord. The Bible says that he gives the right to become children of God. The Apostle Paul furthers this idea in saying that um, salvation is, is, is a gift and that it's not by works so that nobody can boast. So I need you to realize as we talk about this judgment seat of Jesus Christ, this day when we cannot pretend anymore before God, this is before we get to heaven, before we walk into the pearly gates, if you will, but it's not here on earth, it's after our, our death, the resurrection, and at the, after the rapture, we're going to face this judgment seat. It's not about salvation, though. Rather, it's about our service, the life that we lived as an individual believer. Um, Dr. Mark Hitchcock wrote a great book called The End, and he talks about the 15 things that every Christian is going to have to give account for at the Bama seat. Let me just read these out to you. It's how we treated other believers, number one. Number two, how we employed our God-given talents and abilities. Number three, how we used our money. Number four, how we accepted mistreatment or injustice. That's the idea of when, when you're being mistreated, when people are treating you unjust, you're going to have to give account before Jesus Christ about how you responded. Did you retaliate with anger? The Bible says don't repay evil for evil. But repay, but leave it to the Lord. 
And so we're going to be evaluated by others. I'll, I'll just list them off, and you can go online at northvalleychurch.org and see all the daily devotional content and find all the Scripture references. But let me finish the list. Uh, how we endured suffering and trials, or how we spent our time, or how we ran the particular race in which God has granted to us, or how effectively we controlled our fleshly appetites, how many souls that we witnessed to and won to Jesus Christ, how much of the doctrine of the rapture actually controlled our lives, how faithful we were to God's Word and to God's people, how hospitable we were to strangers, how faithful we were in our work. Our work will be evaluated. Our secular work, the work that we do in the community at large, will be evaluated at this judgment seat of Christ. How we supported others in in ministry financially, how we used our words and how we spoke with our mouth, all of these things will be um, evaluated before Jesus Christ. We must all take into account how we live, how we act, knowing that it is going to impact eternity. The Apostle Paul used a building illustration uh, likening the Christian to a church or a building with Christ being the foundation to help us better understand this appointment that we're going to keep. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, he said, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let me speak about what we just read. First, the Apostle Paul mentioned that Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's what our whole life should be centered around. Right now in our world, We have two arenas as a Christian. We live a self-centered lifestyle where everything is about ourself, or we can live a Christ-centered life where everything in our life centers around Jesus Christ. The challenge is, in most homes, is perhaps to put the children in the center of your world and everything about your whole life centers around that child. For the single, it's a relationship. And you put that other person that you're dating in the center of your world and your whole world revolves around that individual and just having that relationship. And in marriage, it can often be the same way. But the greatest commandment is to love God and love him with all our heart. The apostle Paul says that we must first have this foundation that having a Christ-centered mindset in everything we do on our life builds upon Jesus Christ as the foundation, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is alive, he is not dead, that he is our Lord, that he forgives sin, that he offers new life to all who receive him. The foundation of our Christian life is Jesus. It's absolutely Jesus. At the, at the core of Christian theology is Jesus. And the apostle Paul says, if you're gonna build your life the foundation is Jesus. 
He is the cornerstone. He's the centerpiece in which all the rest of those stones of, those, of the, the building of your life hinges upon. Additionally, I want to mention that you might have noticed the comparison between gold, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay, and stubble. It's interesting because gold, silver, and precious stones, those are things that God plants into the ground. But things like wood, hay, or straw, those are things that man can plant into the ground. We can plant trees, we can plant hay, we can plant straw. And what the Apostle Paul says is that all of that, all of what we build upon that foundation of Jesus Christ will be tested with fire. Fire in Scripture is a symbol of judgment. And everything you and I do is going to be tested, revealed, reviewed before Jesus Christ. There's not one thing that we can hide from God. And the Bible says, he likens this to a man's work, a person's work. When you're serving the Lord, when you're giving back faithfully, financially, when you're investing eternally, these are gold and precious stones and silver. These are things that when the fire tests it, it will stand, it will stay, it will remain. But wood, hay, straw, these are things that go up in smoke. These are the earthly things, the, the trivial things that we consume our lives. I wonder as a Christian how much of our life is wood, hay, and straw. Stuff that really, the, the way we invest our time is just trivial. The scripture challenges us to notice the comparison that fire represents the judgment of God and the revealing of our work that we have accomplished. And then the fourth thing I just want to show you is that, again, this is not about salvation. If you look in your Bible in verse 15, it says, if anyone's work is burned up, that means perhaps you built a life that is wood, hay, and straw. You didn't really do a whole lot to invest yourself eternally. It says, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I don't know if you've ever jumped over a fire at a camp out just to be crazy or run your finger across a candle and your finger went through the flame and it might have turned your finger a little brown from the smoke and whatnot, but you're okay. The Bible says that we're going to face this judgment seat of Jesus Christ and as believers, we're saved. We're not being held back and sent to hell if we lived a lousy life as a Christian but we're just going to be escaping the flames. And you and I, friends, don't want to live like that. This reminds me of an old tale I heard about three men that were crossing the desert by camel at night. And as they were crossing the desert, a voice came out of the darkness, and the voice commanded them to dismount, to pick up some pebbles and put them in their pocket. The voice said, at the coming of the sun, you will be both glad and sorry. The travelers did exactly what they heard the voice say, and later when the sun came up, they checked their pockets and realized that these pebbles were no, or, no ordinary pebbles, but they were diamonds. They remembered what the voice had said, that the, at the coming of the sun, you will be both glad and sorry. They were glad that they took as many as they did, but they were sorry that they didn't take more. 
today, I think that the Lord is telling you that at the coming of the Son, you will be both glad and you will be sorry. You will be glad that you used the opportunities, the time, the talent, and the treasures that you did to serve the Lord. And you will be sorry that you didn't use more. Perhaps if the Holy Spirit is, is prompting you now to respond or re- react to using more of your opportunities to glorify God, my encouragement is you do it. You always want to listen to what God is leading you to. If this sounds all too familiar, perhaps the Holy Spirit's working on your life and you always want to get in line with your God-given design. So here's the question. What opportunities are you using to honor God? What are some things that, may, that you might be glad or sorry about if you were to face Jesus Christ today? Well, not only in, at the judgment seat is this a day of review, but it's also a day of rewards. It's a reward ceremony. You're not just going to face Jesus for the review of your life, but you're going to have to face Jesus for the rewards as well. Did you know that heaven will, will be a special place of an award ceremony? As a Christian, this ought to motivate you to seek not earthly awards, but heavenly awards. In Matthew 16, 27, it says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward, there it is, each person according to what they have done. In other words, we're going to be rewarded for what we do. Now, time out. What's tough in our world is that we give an incredible amount of recognition to celebrities, but we don't really pay much attention to honorable working citizens like police officers or firefighters or first responders or teachers or parents or pastors. But celebrities, we celebrate them all the time. We are awash in the Academy Awards, the Oscars, the Emmys, the Producers Guild Award, the Screen Actors Guild Award, the Grammys, the Academy of Country Music Awards, the, 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 the Tony Awards, the Peabody Awards, the Daytime Emmy Awards, the BET Awards, the MTV Video Music Awards, the Golden Globes, the E People's Choice Awards, the Billboard Music Awards, the Critics' Choice Awards, and a host of others. And the reality is, is that these awards actually are not as valuable as you think. Take, for example, imagine if you won the Oscar. Well, it may boost your career. The actual value of the statue isn't going to fund your retirement. Since 1951, every Oscar recipient has signed an agreement giving the Academy a first right of refusal should the actor decide to sell the statue. Or if you or your heirs want to sell your award, you would get a call from the lawyers representing the Academy that you by law uh, have to give them first dibs on paying it back, on buying it back. And they would buy it for the price of a whole whopping $1. The reality is, is that the things that we think are so important on this earth are not near as important as, we, as, we, as they really are. 
And you may be wondering about these rewards and why would the Christian think about rewards? Well, in the Bible, from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture, is all about rewards. For me as a young Christian, I remember reading passages of scriptures talking about the reward that we would receive if we were faithful in this life. And it actually motivated me when somebody handed me that book, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. I began to realize that one day I'm going to have to give account to Jesus Christ himself. And what I realized is that instead of living before an audience of people whom I preached to, I should live before the audience of one. And the truth is, is that's true for every single person because the judgment seat of Jesus Christ is not a, an evaluation of all a congregation or a family of believers, a household, or a group of believers, or a class of believers. It's for the individual. It's for your life. It's for you individually. And there's a review and there's a reward all through Scripture, God ensures that we understand this important rewards motivation. In Genesis, we learn that God promised Abraham a great reward. In Proverbs, we learn that the righteous get a sure reward. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that when we work to do it with all of our heart, expecting that God will reward us. In Matthew, we read Jesus says that when you give to the needy, you will be rewarded. In Hebrews, the Bible says that God rewards those who faithfully seek him. In Revelation, at the end of our Bible, it says that Jesus says that he's coming soon and he will reward every believer based on what they've done. That means the things that you and I do. So what's the point? God's goal is to motivate the Christian towards a Christ-centered ambition in life, not a self-centered ambition in life. It is good to be ambitious. But if the center of your ambition is yourself, you've made yourself out greater than God and you stand in idolatry. But if Christ is your ambition, then the world needs to look out and your reward is great in heaven. God's goal in all of this is for you to be motivated to live the Christian life and expect a great reward. Now let's look at these rewards more closely. The New Testament references five different crowns in the New Testament that Jesus himself is going to give out. And he, I'm going to call them the Jesus Awards. And you and me need to get ready for the Jesus Awards. Crown number one. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 through 20, for what is our hope or, or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. He had planted a church there and he is writing to them to encourage them to, to live in proper perspective. And he tells them, that he is, they are, they, they are his joy. He echoes the words of the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John who said, there's no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. One of the greatest joys that you and I can have as believers is to see other people um, come to faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? We do this through sharing our faith. The Bible says that there's gonna be a crown of 
boasting or rejoicing in heaven um, for all of those that share their faith with the lost. You think of folks like Billy Graham who've gone around the world and preached the gospel so faithfully, he will receive that crown of boasting. There is one thing you can boast about is the power and the change that happens in one's life. It is when we are faithful to teach the word or preach the word, God is faithful to use the word of God. And so many times when I've preached the gospel, it's been very curious to me that I've asked them about their backstory. And many times they've said, well, somebody else in my life sowed a seed and told me about Jesus, but I just came today and I heard it and I decided to trust Jesus Christ. For many of you who are members of the church, you need to realize that that crown of boasting, you need that. You, you need that to be a faithful member and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to share your faith with friends and family members. You have a responsibility before God to fulfill the great commandments and the great commission as a member of this church. Additionally, for the volunteers, you hold a special role as Sunday school teachers to share your faith with the kids and teach the Bible. And the Bible says is that there's a day awaiting when we will receive a crown for sharing the gospel with those that do not know Jesus. For the staff at our church, when Pastor Joshua sings, he's declaring truths and unbelievers are present and they hear that word and they respond to that. And so for all of the people in our church, every staff member, every elder, every member, every volunteer, all Christians need to aim at receiving that crown of boasting. But you may say, well, how do I share? Well, I've said this before. I think uh, in, at our church, we choose the, the evangelism style, what's called relational evangelism. And we encourage you just to start the conversation with your unbelieving friends, your non-Christian friends, family members. Begin to tell about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Talk about self. Talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Talk about what the church is doing in your life and how you're benefiting from that. And at that point, it's a great opportunity to invite them to be a part of a church service or to, to, to be able to dialogue more about your uh, life in Jesus Christ. Secondly, talk about sin. Most people are afraid to talk about sin. You should talk about sin because it gives a category for people to understand what's wrong with our world. When you talk about sin, you actually help people figure out there's something deeper going on that's harder to figure out. But the Bible says that the whole world is infected with sin, that everyone and everything has been infected or affected by sin. And then you can talk about third is the Savior, Jesus Christ. You can never exclude Jesus from the conversation of sharing your faith. He is the centerpiece of all of Christianity. The Bible says is that, here's a trustworthy saying, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So you make that offer. You share about how Jesus has changed your life. You share about the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's popular to talk about God, but talk about Jesus specifically. Jesus is God. So second crown, I want to encourage you to consider in this award ceremony is the crown of life. In James 1.12, it says this, is blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a special crown in heaven for all those who endure persecution in the right way. 
there's a special crown in heaven for all those who have laid their lives on the line for the name and fame of Jesus Christ and died a martyr's death. Let me encourage you and challenge you to think about pursuing this crown. God's word gives a special promise to all those who stand strong in their faith under persecution. We should understand persecution as this. It's any hostility experienced from the world as a result of one's identification as a Christian. In today's time, you are going to be increasingly labeled a bigot, a fundamentalist, and squeezed out of the cultural mainstream as a Christian. Anything such as verbal harassment or hostile feelings, attitudes, or actions could be labeled persecution. But actions so extreme such as beatings or physical torture or confinement or isolation, rape, severe punishment, imprisonment, slavery, discrimination, education of education or employment, or even death are extreme examples of persecution. And these are happening all over the world. And when we think of persecution, right, so many times our mind goes where? It goes back into history and we think of Rome or we think of the Emperor Nero in the first century who persecuted Christians and threw Christians into the uh, Colosseums to be eaten by lions or, or lit their bodies on fire and impaled them on spears and lined the main streets with them as a sign and a symbol and to outlaw Christianity and to perhaps to eradicate Christianity. But I don't know if you know this or not, but actually in today's time, it is, there's more persecution going on in our world than any other time in all of world history. Globally, right now, Christians are being pushed out of the churches in Algeria. Bibles are being burned in India on a regular basis. Christians' homes are being burned in Vietnam. In China, an unregistered church will be demolished. Right now, Christians are living in times of global persecution. According to Open Doors, a ministry that monitors global persecution around the world, they noted that some 260 million Christians are experiencing global persecution for their choice to follow Christ. That means literally it's one in nine Christians around the world are intense levels of persecution. And you might say to me, well, Pastor Ryan, what about the USA? Well, in another report that I read about the International Christian Concern, uh, it's an organization, there was actually a top three watch list that made it out in 2020. And it said three countries were at the top of this growing concern for persecution. Can you guess which ones? According to this report, these countries include Mexico, Russia, and the United States of America. I remember recently when we were down in Mexico on a missions trip uh, with I-68, and there was a gentleman that was telling us stories of radical uh, persecution that was going on um, for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this young man would go into remote areas that are what's called unreached, meaning they've never really heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ And preaching this gospel is such an assault that you can lose your life down there. 
and the United States of America, while American citizens are not experiencing at all the same levels of persecution in other parts of the world, Americans are being persecuted. There is a certain segment of the United States culture right now and the courts that are dedicating themselves to the absolute removal, the dismantling, the disruption, and the destruction of the Christian faith in the public life of our country. There is a segment, and as I have said before, it should be no surprise to you that this is happening. Let us look at the the words of the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy. He says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I've been persecuted multiple times if we're going to label persecution, harassment, insults, slander, um, attack, verbal attack, and verbal harassment. As a pastor or any kind of leader, when you take a leadership position, that kind of stuff's going to happen. But if you're a Christian, it'll happen even more. And what I want to tell you, friends, is I pray that this is the church, the church that would respond and grow in levels of leadership and push back forces of darkness and proclaim truth in a post-truth society and stand strong. The reward is motivating. When I look at the stories of Scripture and the passages of Scripture, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for great is their reward. That's encouraging. We need to know that there's encouragement and blessing here and now for standing up and standing strong in in the midst of persecution. And there's reward and awards in heaven for us. What's the third crown? Number three, it's the crown of imperishability. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 25, the apostle Paul gives us an imagery of an athlete. He says, do you not know that in in a race, all all the runners run but only one receives the prize. In other words, when you shoot the, 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 the pistol and the, the folks start running down the track, only one's going to receive that prize. He says, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. The wreath that the athlete would have received would have been like an an olive uh, branches woven together to sit on an athlete's head. Um, Much like we see in today's Olympic Games, we see that they receive a wreath, or you can think of the signia and the symbol, the icon, the logo for the Olympics. It's wreaths or it's rings, but there's wreaths all tied to that. And the Apostle Paul mentions a few things about this. He notes the discipline that is needed, and they're going to work towards a perishable wreath. In other words, one that's just going to fade away, rot, and decay. But there's discipline that he's highlighting for the athlete. And the discipline of an athlete means that they got to show up for practice. It means they've got to say no to the social parties and the gatherings from time to time. Say, I'm sorry, I got to get some good rest so I can go compete. The athlete has got to watch his diet. The athlete's got to work really hard and uh, constantly be reviewed, make assessments, make adjustments. 
And the Apostle Paul says, that's the mindset that we need as a Christian. And he wrote earlier in the chapter, and he said that he basically adjusted his whole life that he may win others to faith in Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? Well, he did it through personal study of God's Word. He understood his times. He understood his culture. He understood people. He had a great heart for them. He says he would, he would, do, he would become this to be able to reach these folks. He'd become that in order to reach them. He accommodated himself. He studied people. At North Valley, we need to discipline ourselves. There's a, a, a reward, this crown of imperishability for those of us that discipline ourselves to grow in godliness. Right now, you may ask, well, Pastor Ryan, what do you think are the areas that we need to grow and discipline ourselves as a church right now? Well, I think there's three crucial areas for our church to grow. In COVID-19 global pandemic season, there's three things I think are most important for us to grow as a church. Right now, I'd say number one, it's giving time. Giving time of ourselves. Right now, we have so many people perhaps that got comfortable on the couch, and no offense, I'm glad you're at home. If you want to choose to be at home, we got lots of options. However, if you've forfeited and given up or slowed down on your spiritual faith and fervor, it's time to light that fire again. And then here'd be my question for all those that have been disengaged from serving. My question would be is, how are you serving? Because the Christian faith is not just about faith. It's about deeds. The apostle James says is, if you have faith, you have deeds. Deeds and faith go together. So my question is right now for our church, where's your deeds? What are you doing in a time like this? Many of you are serving. But what about all, we have perhaps half of our church that are at home. And I love you, no judgment, all love, but here's the question for you. How do you serve in a time like this? And that's a question really the whole church has to answer around the entire nation. And here's my challenge just for a moment is, remember, we have an appointment to make. And for all those that are new that are at our church, right now we have more and more new people than I've seen in a long, long time. And, and you guys look great. But I don't know you. And I wonder, how are you using your time? Will you use your time to honor the Lord so we can grow there? Secondly, I would challenge us to give witness. Why? Because you're so politically incorrect to say anything right now. So what could really make you grow is be bold and stand up and speak up. Don't shut up. Don't sit down. Stand up and speak up. Talk about Jesus. Say that you're a Christian. All of us have that responsibility. You ask, what are the ways that we could discipline ourselves? Dedicate yourself for a life of service. Say phrases like, I'm here to serve. That's what Jesus said. Say things like, I want to I be a blessing and I will open my mouth and share the good things about Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed to be a Christian. And thirdly, I would say, and it's in this order of priority, is give your money. And I put give your money at the end because I think it's the least important of the other two right now in American church and especially our church. I think giving your time is harder because we value time more than money in our culture. And giving your witness, Satan wants to silence the church. 
And in our atmosphere of our culture today, nobody wants to speak up. So speak up, and then thirdly, give your money. And that's the easiest of the three. Giving your money is a sign and a symbol. When you tithe, that means a tenth. You honor, you're honoring the Lord, and your tithe is a representation of the whole. And the Bible talks about blessing when we give. And the Bible even says that when we give, there is a reward that awaits us in heaven. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. And right now, we have so many new folks that are coming to our church. I'm wondering, are you giving? Maybe you're giving nothing. You should move from giving nothing to giving something. Well, what if you're giving something? Well, you ought to move from giving something to giving significantly. And for those of you that are giving significantly, move from giving significant to giving sacrificially. We all got room to grow, amen? So I want to challenge you in this. And then fourthly, there is this crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness is recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. It says, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all those who have longed for the appearing. What is this longing for the appearing? It is a desire to see Jesus come. When we say the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Do we really want God's kingdom to come? Do we really long for being with God? I've had this conversation with folks here recently in discussion when I taught on the rapture, and some people are like, I don't want to be raptured. I want to stay. I don't want to leave earth. I love earth. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I don't want to do that. I want to stay here. I want to build my business. So what do you, how do you cultivate a heart of longing for God if you're not actually there? I've been there. There's been times where I don't really long for God's return. There's been times for me. So how do you do that? I would say a couple of things. Number one is you look around at the world. <laughs> this is the opportunity for you who are an optimist to to pause for a minute and be a realist. Look around at the world around you and see all the junk. See all the trauma, all the drama, all the corruption, all the hatred, all the violence, all the scandal, all the killing, all the injustice, all the lack of peace, all the wars, all the pandemics, all the problems. And when you see that, here's what you can say. God, I thank you that You're going to come and restore all things. Come, Lord Jesus. Look look around, number one. Secondly, I would challenge you to look back. Look back in the graciousness and the goodness of God and see all the blessings in your life and be like, man, when I look back at my life, I can see the hand of God on my life. I can see how he's been faithful. He's been faithful from generation to generation. And what if you look back in scriptures? What if you looked back and you saw all the prophetic texts that were pushing towards the coming Messiah of Jesus Christ, towards his first coming, his arrival on earth? You would look back and say, whoa, if the prophetic literature said that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, born of the Virgin Mary, born, uh, Lord, that would be, that's amazing, then he can do it again. When you look around, you look back, you also need to look ahead The Apostle Paul challenged us, and from prison, he writes from a cold cell in in a dungeon in Rome, and he says, 
our citizenship is not of this world, it's in heaven. He has such an eternal perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, you need the mindset of the Apostle Paul on your life. If you're going to stand strong in difficult times, you, you need to adopt that mindset. I want to challenge you for that crown of righteousness. We all got room to grow. We all do. I want to push myself each year to give a little bit more, to serve a little bit longer, to squeeze out, to wring out my life. Why? Because I know I'm going to meet Jesus, and i got to give account for everything, every hour, every day. And I want reward. Number five, the crown of glory. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, says this, awesome passage, says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Here in the text, we find perhaps one of the most helpful passages for church pastoral leadership. It's an opportunity for us to see that the the pastor's relationship to the church is kind of like the shepherd to the sheep. He's got to guide, provide, lead, correct, redirect. He needs to be that, that person in those people's lives to help nurture, to care for. But I believe as well as as important as this is for pastoral leadership, I don't believe that this passage is limited to church staff or elders. Rather, I believe God's word says it's for all those who shepherd the flock of God. Let me give you some examples of shepherding. As parents, you shepherd your little flock. Some of you have small flocks, others have bigger flocks. Every single family is a flock. And the parents from the pattern of Scripture are the shepherds. You have oversight. You're the spiritual and moral leader of your children. Or think of the Sunday school teachers at North Valley Kids. You guys are the shepherds of your class, and you have a little flock. They look to you for guidance, for instruction, Or you as a community group leader, you're a shepherd. You've been entrusted by God through the local church to shepherd. You are very eligible for this crown. Or think of the employer, the Christian employer, who is or an overseer of employees or a team leader. In a sense, you have a flock. You have a flock, every single person inside the church or outside of the church that has oversight. Perhaps in the, in the church world, the guest services leaders. You, you guys are serving and administering and team leaders are overseeing and you're providing hospitality and care. These are the kinds of uh, descriptions of a shepherd. And in the business world, for you that have employees and or you've been placed in any kind of position that places you over people, there's this need to shepherd those that are under your leadership. In ministry, oftentimes, we can feel 
undervalued and underappreciated. I've talked about all these different crowns. And in ministry, when you're shepherding so many times, so much of what you do goes unnoticed or not appreciated. And there's a story that it reminds me of in closing of an old missionary couple who had been working in Africa for many years. And they were returning to New York City to retire, and they had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated. They were discouraged and afraid. They discovered they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt. True story. He was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. But no one really paid much attention to these missionaries. They watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's entourage with the passengers trying to catch a glimpse of this great man. And as the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, is something wrong? Something's wrong. Why should we have given our whole lives to faithful service to God in Africa all these many years and have no care about a thing about us? Here is this man who comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. The wife responded and said, dear, you really shouldn't feel that way. The husband responded and said, I can't help it. It just doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries were there, and the papers were full of the president's arrival, but no one noticed the missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the east side of town, hoping the next day to see if they could find a way to start making a living in the city. But that night, the man's spirit broke. He said to his wife, I can't take this. God's not treating us fair. His wife replied, sweetie, why don't you go to the bedroom and tell the Lord about it? A short time later, he came out of the bedroom, but now his face was completely changed. It was different. His wife asked, sweetie, what, what happened? And he said, well, the Lord settled it with me. I told him how bitter I was about the president should receive the tremendous homecoming when no one was there to meet us when we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed like the Lord just said to me, he put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, son, you're not home yet. See, the reality is, is none of us are home. And we live in a world where we need to realize we're just passing through. And you and me, we've got to realize that this world is not our home and we are looking forward to a greater place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege, the opportunity to, to be able to look at these passages of Scripture today. I pray for all those that would see these truths, that they would begin to make changes right now in their lives. Lord, and in doing so, if they're in line with your design, they will be better blessed, they will be a better blessing to other people, and they can expect a greater reward. We pray this would happen in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.